Today is the second day of our spring session, 29th of August 2016, and we're going to continue to look at the Metta Sutta, or the Karaniya Metta Sutta, to give its full name. This Karaniya is the phrase that starts the actual the chant. In our version, this is what should be done, or perhaps more closely, this is what is to be done. The word metta, I didn't mention this yesterday, is uh, closely related to the word for friend. So one way of translating metta is uh, friendliness. This can be a helpful uh, term, a helpful reminder um, in terms of how we relate to ourselves and to the practice. To make friends with whatever arises. It describes um, not just how our behaviour can be, but also the quality of the mind that um, expresses itself in that behaviour. And, the, and the, the essential thing in metta is benevolence, is wishing well. And wishing not just um, ordinary kind of happiness, but genuine happiness. We can connect Meta actually to our bodhisattvic vows. All beings without number I vow to liberate. What we're really vowing to liberate all beings from is um, the poisons, the three poisons greed. anger, delusion and so the first of our our four vows flows into the second endless blind passions I vow to uproot this is is what this endless blind passions refers to as the poisons so we can't really help fully while we're subject to these poisons blind passions dharma gates beyond measure I vow to penetrate got to be able to see clearly in order to help to help in this liberating process understand the laws of the universe how things work how people work it's all summed up in the last one the great way of Buddha I vow to attain some some translations it says the 
the, the great way of the Buddha is unattainable. I vow to attain it. We vow to attain the unattainable, ungraspable. This is the, the infinite context for our efforts. A boundless mind. And also um, connect with these four vows and our uh, and, uh, um, practice of metta in the world to the three gener- general resolutions that we take at Jukai. I resolve to refrain from evil, I resolve to do good, I resolve to liberate all living beings. And we can, we can interpret them as, as steps. I resolve to refrain from evil. The least we can do is, is refrain from harmful actions. At our teachers' meeting in, in Rochester in July, uh, we discussed this, this resolution and <coughs> Roshi um, proposed changing, changing the, the wording from refrain from evil to refrain from harmful actions. Because it's, in a way it's stricter. Evil sounds pretty bad. The things are going to refrain from but harmful actions it covers a lot of territory so it's by no means easy just to do this first one but actually there's more we can do I resolve to do good in other words not just refraining from doing harm refraining from the negative but also making an effort to do, do things which are positive, that actually are a benefit. That benefit, that benefit us and benefit other sentient beings, near and far. That's a big ask. But then there's a third level. Beyond that, I resolve to liberate all living beings. So not just doing sort of ordinary kinds of good, not that they're, they're not valuable, but to put our energy into activities Thoughts, thought, speech, and action that are liberating. In other words, acting and living in ways that help us to awaken and help others to awaken. You could say in this one we're we're not just addressing the symptoms, but going for 
a cure, addressing the causes of our dis-ease. So we're going to come around again back to the four vows, uprooting those, those blind passions. Freeing ourselves and freeing others are intimately related. So to our to our chant, Amita Sutra. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright. It's as far as we got last time. Next line. Straightforward and gentle in speech. So, um, in, in, the, in the Dharma, our... our um, Different actions always divided up into three kinds. Um, um, thinking, speaking and acting. And so here this line deals with our speech. Straightforward and gentle. In other words, um, honest, being honest in our speech. but also at the same time kind. There are some people who pride themselves in their honesty. They may preface what they're going to say with, I'm going to be brutally honest. And sometimes it is brutal. Because words can, can injure deeply. It used to be that... Um, that little saying that we'd say sometimes in school, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt them. But actually, um, words can wound us. They may not actually break bones, but they can, they can break other things. Especially things that um, adults can say to us when we're children sometimes these children will just take these possibly in ways they're not meant but they go, they go in and they lodge themselves and they can colour a whole life or at least until we, we become conscious of the way in which these Statements are acting on us. We had a friend who was told that he was tone deaf when he was a child at school, and and he couldn't felt like he couldn't chant. And this is, this is a mild example, but it really took him a long time to overcome that 
very strong conviction that he couldn't chant. And besides sort of major uh, wounding words, there's also the kind of um, corrosiveness of of just day-by-day negativity. Sometimes you see this in married couples who, who uh, dig at each other, needle. And over time this can become very damaging, alienating. Or people who have a compulsion to argue or to win an argument often. This can be more important to people than than maintaining relationships. In the classical teachings, there are um, right, right speech is usually divided up into four kinds. Lying, just to say intentionally deceiving others. Slander, in other words, um, speaking of people's faults um, can, be, can be falsely speaking about people's faults, but also even if if it's saying something true, but if the motivation is to create division, this is, can be very damaging. Then harsh speech, which we've been talking about, words used as weapons. And the last one is gossip, which maybe doesn't do as much damage, but you can waste a lot of time on it. And now we have sort of institutionalized gossip of, of, um, of the me- in the media and reality television, like whole um, hours and hours and hours of programming where you can, you can sort of vicariously um, look down on people. The, the, the more ordinary kind of go- gossip often is used as a way of, of connecting with others, say in a, a workplace or other place, but it's a kind of false connection, a shallow one. You, you share some negative view of somebody or something and you create a, a sort of link, but it's a very tenuous one. So this line of a, a sutta really covers these four um, by implication to speak straightforwardly. Meaningfully, gently. My teacher Roshi Colhead used used to say about talk if it isn't helpful it's harmful 
sometimes uh, si- uh, silence in, in uh, retreat centres, both, both Buddhist ones and actually Catholic ones sometimes too, is called noble silence. And I heard somebody comment once about this, that it's called noble silence because it's a lot easier to be noble in silence than it is to be noble in speech. (laughs) Next line, humble and not conceited. Sort of emphasizing it here, giving, giving, saying the same thing twice in a sense. If we are able and upright, as has been mentioned earlier in the sutra, then that may give us some sense of moral superiority. a.k.a. pride. We can uh, pretty easily fall into being puritanical. And the, um, the irony is that being puritanical is an impurity. One way of understanding Puritanism is is that it's it's a kind of defensiveness, an attachment to purity and to goodness, rectitude. And we probably all suffer from it to one degree or another, to the extent to which we, uh, our, our good actions are motivated by something other than loving kindness. Puritan is, is often good not because she or he <coughs> sees all beings as lovable and and wishes to protect them from harm and and um, facilitate their their well-being, but out of a kind of bargaining, a sort of quid pro quo kind of attitude, um, along the lines of, well, if I'm good, I'll be okay. If I'm good. I follow all the rules. God will protect me, will favour me. Or if, if it's a Buddhist, I'll be building my merit mountain. So there's a kind of calculating element to it. 
if we're doing okay, there can be this kind of brittle pride that develops. And, and this sort of pride is, is always brittle because it can be knocked down by all kinds of different things, broken. If, if our motivations are impure in this kind of way, then we can feel enormous resentment towards people who break the precepts or the commandments and seem to get away with it. Or it can come up with in relation to our, our sitting in our practice. We, we see someone who seems to sit a lot less than we do or has been practicing for a shorter time than we have, but we, we perceive that person as, uh, as king, um, favored treatment in some way, being recognized, given more responsibility than us, and so forth. Very, very painful. The old saying, pride comes before a fall. The falling is, is, is inherent in the pride because the pride is is trying to raise ourselves up above, above others and what goes up must come down. Of course, um, Pride makes it, it very hard for us to, to rejoice in others' good fortune. And this is one of the aspects of metta, the, th- the third part, mudita, actually, actually practicing this rejoicing, which brings enormous amount of joy because there's always somebody around who's experiencing good fortune. So there's a, a constant source of joy available if we can open up to it. But if we're caught up in, in comparing ourselves with others and needing to feel like we're, we're better one way or another, then we, we miss out on this completely.
the, the, the Metta Sutta says, humble and not conceited. As a teaching about conceit in Buddhism, which um, lists three conceits. I'm superior to you. I'm inferior to you. I'm as good as you. And they're all delusional, delusional in different ways. We need to see each of them as a construct. An ego maneuver. And we can go all through all three at different times, but we usually have one that's uh, particularly familiar to us, the well-worn grooves. I'm inferior to you is, is a kind of, um, let's say, um, reverse pride. And it can, it can um, limit us in different ways. It may mean that we, we don't <coughs> speak when speaking would be helpful. We don't. We may not um, work for our own well-being when that's required. We may sell ourselves short. We may. We may hold back from doing something which needs to be done. I'm as good as you is not so obvious as an, an ego ploy, but again, it's, it's taking a particular stance in relation to others. The first two are about uh, attachment to being above or attachment to being below others. This one's about attachment to pure quality. I'm the same as you. I'm as good as you. But we're also different. This is a pretty common one in, in our very egalitarian society. But if we get too attached to this aspect, there's a quality aspect, then we can also sell ourselves short. We may not recognize when somebody has something to offer us. Somebody might be more evolved than we are or have a perspective that we can learn from. Maybe a person who can see something that I can't see. Might be a good idea to 
pay some respect here. Listen. Next line, contented and easily satisfied. We talked about this being contented before. This is not something that we hear much about in Zen. In fact, if anything, we'd say in Zen, the, the emphasis can be on being discontented. Generating the great doubt. That, that has its place. But it's also helpful to understand this as a virtue. Contented, the word contented is related to the word for being contained. to be happy with where we are right now how things are in this moment it's common sense really because that's how it is and it could be referring here to material conditions We can get into kinds of thoughts around conditions. You can imagine that our mat is thinner than all the other mats in the Zendo. If only I had a thicker mat or a better cushion or a better body. Or it can, it, we can get discontented with our, our, what we perceive to be our spiritual condition. But of course, as soon as we get into, whether it's to do with material or spiritual things, we, we are discontent, pulls us away from what's going on right now. Contentment doesn't mean getting complacent, but starting from where we are. It means having um, a willingness to work with an imperfect world. A world in which things aren't the way we want them to be. Or, are, or a world that is only occasionally how we want it be, to be. It's a willingness to work with our own karmic load. 
This is the one that we probably resist most. To work with our own shortcomings, our afflictions. Our obstructions. To, to not fight reality. It doesn't mean we have to agree with it. But to get real. We talked in Taisho recently about um, Master Xing Yin's four um, principles he works with in his daily life. Face it, accept it, deal with it, let it go. The second part of this line is easily satisfied. So the whole line, contented and easily satisfied. Related. The, the translations maybe a little nearer to the Pali is easy to support. And of course the Buddha was addressing monks when he gave this discourse. And an example is given in, in one commentary um, for this, that he's, that he's talking here about um, monks and mendicants uh, cheerfully accepting food of poor quality rather than sullenly. In other words, con uh, tra uh, um, communicating to your donors that you're, you're displeased with the quality of the food. But we can, we can interpret it um, more broadly here as meaning He not needy, or I think of the line we chant in the firming faith and mind. The great way is not difficult for those who do not pick and choose. The, the very very rich often suffer from this disease the most strongly of not being satisfied. It's often what drives them to um, compulsively make money. But also the money means that they can keep on feeding this bottomless passion to try and adjust conditions get everything just right. In Rochester there's a, a museum, a great museum, um, called George Eastman House. 
Uh, it's now a photography and film archive and museum. But it re- was originally George Eastman, the founder of Codex Mansion. And besides the actual museum, you can go and tour through some of the rooms that have been preserved as they were at when George Eastman lived in this, this huge mansion. Um, and the dining room, um, it's very large and grand, but the, the, the tour guides tell the story about this dining room that after George Eastman had this house built um, and was already living in it, he decided the dining room was too small. And so he had the whole house cut in two and the the back part of the house pushed back in order to create a bigger dining room. Don't think his life was probably any happier after he had done this. In fact, I think he eventually killed himself in the house. You could also understand this this um, easily satisfied as as um, you turn it around and and, and so it's talking about being um, not being needy. Do with material things, but also emotionally. To not be burdensome to others. To be to be self-reliant. Of course, this can become an attachment to, to, and it is sometimes in our society, of being so attached to being self-reliant that we can't ask for help when we do need it. We could we could say it's a it's a mark of of refinement to have developed inner resources that we can. We can draw on when faced by different kinds of adversity, hardship. This theme is continued in the next line. Unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways. Unburdened with duties. This doesn't mean um, avoiding one's duties or being irresponsible, but to be take care not to get over busy in our in our culture. Hyperactivity can be a um, a major form of of um, evasion of life for some people. And people, able people, 
can often strongly identify with their work and with their achievements and their successes. And of course this comes, um, the more we identify with something like this, the more it comes with anxiety over failure and loss. Over busy people often will have a really hard time when they retire. It is, a, it is a koan for us, I think, for many of us, to find the right balance with duties. How do we take responsibility? And there's so much need for this in, in our world. And to lead where leading is needed. But at the same time, to remain unburdened available to not not think I'm too busy or to feel it even if you don't say it there's too much going on I can't possibly see this person or do this thing Again, there can be besides, besides, behind our busyness a kind of inflated ego sense of importance. We can't do everything, but we can play a part. I think of something that, that Thich Nhat Hanh said, which I've said before in Taisho. When, when he was asked by somebody um, about feeling overwhelmed or, or um, unclear of what to do and he said pick one thing and do it with your whole heart and then you are connecting with all the other efforts that everybody makes so to do to pick what we do and do it fully then it can have great meaning and we can, we can take joy in all the other efforts of others Unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways. F to be frugal is, is something that is so urgently needed in our world on a global scale. There's so much arrogance in the way in which people in rich countries use way more than their share of resources so 
some of this, if you're living in a rich country, some of this is unavoidable, but there is a lot that we can do as individuals to uh, minimize our needs, to, our needs, to live a simple life. As an expression of metta, so many ways in which this, this um, imbalance can be measured but one, one is by in terms of our ecological footprint and here's what um, Mathieu Ricard writes in his book Altruism He's talking about how the um, ecological footprint of, of um, the richest part of our uh, global population is disproportionately large compared with the rest. A person's ecological footprint is defined as the area of land required to supply him with food and habitat, the energy required for his movements. These movements are linked to an individual's consumption and waste management as well as the emissions for which he is responsible. If one were to, to divide the total area of Earth's biologically productive land by the number of its inhabitants, each person would have around 1.8 hectares. Yet the average ecological footprint is currently 2.7 hectares per person in the world, proof that we are living beyond our global means. These ecological footprints vary according to living standards. The average Americans is 8 hectares. It is 6 hectares in Sweden, 1.8 hectares in most parts of Africa, and 0.4 hectares in India. Stephen Pakala of Princeton University has calculated that the best off, those who represent 7% of the global population, are responsible for half the world's, world's CO2 emissions, while the poorest 50% only emit 7%, a negligible amount for 3.5 billion people. The richest 7%, who moreover enjoy the best means for protecting themselves against pollution, benefit at the expense of the rest of the world. <coughs> there certainly exist among those with great fortunes people who are generous and determined to strive for a better world, but they remain in the minority. Today, the lifestyle of the wealthiest compromises the future prosperity of humanity and the well-being of the biosphere. We must act, but it is not enough to economize simply by insulating our homes better, employing solar or geothermic energy, using appliances that consume less electricity, etc., it appears that people who make these kinds of savings often end up spending more money travelling, for example, or enjoying other activities and purchases that bring about, directly or indirectly, greenhouse gas emissions and various other forms of pollution. 
We must therefore not only save energy, but also live more modestly and stop associating moderation with dissatisfaction. So we really, as human beings right now, um, a real change of heart is being demanded of us. To be truly frugal in our ways. We'll stop here and continue tomorrow and recite the four vows.